Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. Over the course of the next couple of podcasts, I'm going to be sharing two talks that I gave at a women's conference last weekend at Bethel Baptist Church in Fairbanks, Alaska. This first talk is called Pretty Little Lies. great to be back. I love Alaska. I love flying all night and getting here at three in the morning and being greeted by giant taxidermied uh, grizzly bears and polar bears in the airport. There is nothing like it. I love it. Uh, in, in my introduction, she mentioned that I went through a time of doubt, and I'm going to share that story in greater detail a little bit later. But first, what I want to do is talk about what this conference is all about, and that is pretty little lies. We all see these lies. With the invention of the internet, there is no place you can go that's so remote that you are insulated from the messages that are in popular culture all over. It used to be you'd have to go somewhere to find something out or go to the library and check out a book, but we live in a time now where any information that you could possibly dream of is at your fingertips and at our kids' fingertips as well. We are bombarded with information all the time. And it can be confusing sometimes because some messages really sound good. Some messages sound like they're really a positive thing that's really good for the world. So those are the types of messages we're going to take a look at today. We're going to look at what I call pretty little lies. Actually, I didn't think of that. Holly, I think, thought of that, which is such a great title. And I thought, oh, that's going to be so fun. I had a bunch of fun putting together these talks to just try to expose some of these pretty little lies that we find in our culture on the internet and social media, blogs, books, women's ministries. They get, it gets in there too. And we're going to take a look at them. So we're going to look at these lies. I'm going to give you a little overview, then we'll dig down deeper on each one. The first one is you are enough, right? We hear this all the time. You are enough, ladies. I am enough. The second lie we're going to look at is you are the boss of you. This is a message we get all over the place. It's a sense of autonomy that we are in charge of ourselves. The third lie we're going to look at is you shouldn't judge, right? If you're a Christian and you've ever shared the gospel with anyone, which is by nature exclusive. We as Christians believe that Jesus is the only way to God. That's 
considered offensive in our culture. And a lot of times we can, we can get met with a you shouldn't judge uh, type of, of attitude. The fourth lie we're going to look at is authenticity is everything. That's the most important thing is just to be authentic. And the last one is speak your truth, right? And I know you've all heard that one because Oprah said it on an award show and it was big, big news. And then what we're going to do is we're going to talk about each one of these lies in the first talk here. And we're just going to talk about why they fail logically, why they fail from a common sense perspective, why they don't actually work in real life. And then in the second talk, we're going to go to the Bible and we're going to look at some biblical truths that counteract some of these pretty little lies. And the biblical truths we're going to look at is Jesus is enough and why that's actually really, really, really good news for us. The second one is that the Bible is the boss of you. Did you know that? If you're a Christian, the Bible is the boss of you. The third truth we're going to look at is you should judge rightly. The fourth truth we're going to look at is holiness is everything. And the last truth we're going to look at is not speak your truth, but speak the truth. All right, let's dig in. Let's look at pretty little lie number one. You are enough, right? We see this everywhere. If you go online, you can find an I am enough children's book. You can get a meme to share on social media, on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You can buy an I am enough t-shirt while you wear your I am enough ring. While you look at your I am enough wall art and get an I am enough tattoo. While you drink coffee from your I am enough coffee mug. Which I much less prefer to the much more realistic I'm tired coffee mug. (laughs) Which is what I want to drink out of in the morning. So one place that we see this message uh, a lot is from a blogger named Rachel Hollis. Now, Rachel is a women's blogger, uh, speaker. She's an author. She has a Facebook community. If you go on her Facebook page, you'll see that she has a community on Facebook that's over 1.5 million people. She does a live broadcast on Facebook uh, every day with tens of thousands of people watching. She wrote a book called Girl, Wash Your Face. How many have heard of the book Girl, Wash Your Face? A lot of people. I, I hadn't heard of it, but I saw it in Costco. And so that's when I realized, like, this is a really popular book. Uh, she published this book on a Christian publisher. She is a self-proclaimed Christian. And all throughout the book, there are messages of what she thinks about Jesus and the gospel. And she talks openly about her faith. Now, this book was one of the best-selling books of 2018. Her new book, which is called Girl Stop Apologizing, is slated to become one of the best-selling books of 2019. Now, I'm not talking about one of the best-selling books in the Christian bookstores. I'm talking about in the nation. This is one of the most popular books of last year. But this is actually marketed as a Christian book. And I want to make that point because sometimes people will say, well, it's just, you know, it's just secular self-help. It's not secular. It's marketed as Christian. In fact, if you go on your Bible app on your phone, you'll find a five-day devotional based on the book, Girl, Wash Your Face. So this was definitely marketed as a Christian resource. And the main message of this book is, I am enough. You are enough. There's Rachel in her self-made t-shirt. I want to read you a quote from her book that I think sums up 
what's underneath everything that we're going to talk about today. And just as a side note, I am going to be using examples from pop culture, examples of particular leaders and bloggers. And I just want to say I'm not picking on them as a person, but since their ideas are put out into the public, it's our responsibility as Christians to analyze their ideas and find out if what they're saying is true or false. I'm not judging any of these people's, you know, the fate of their eternal soul or anything like that. I just want to make that clear. I'm not picking on them, but I'm going to pick on their ideas. Okay. And that's when we have to do that. And we have to, to take what's put into the world and put it through a biblical filter and see if it's true, even if someone claims to be a Christian or not. So I'm going to read this quote from her book because it directly has to do with how she defines the gospel. And here's how she defines it. She says, I studied the gospel and finally grasped the divine knowledge that I am loved and worthy and enough as I am. Okay, so this message of You are enough just as you are. There's nothing you have to change about yourself. You just need to love yourself more, accept yourself more. You are enough as you are. Which, of course, for Christians in the room, you know that this contradicts the real gospel, which says that you are absolutely not enough. There's no way to calculate your not enoughness because we are all sinners and we desperately need a Savior. We need to actually repent for our sins and turn from our sins and follow Jesus. So this is a false gospel that's being marketed to millions and millions of people. Last time I checked, her book had sold over a million copies, and I'm sure that was a while back, so I'm sure that it sold quite a bit more since then. So we're going to kind of use this as our thesis for today, for these pretty little lies that we're going to see popping up all over. How many of you like the show Hoarders? Do you ever watch Hoarders? My husband loves Hoarders, and we used to watch it together. And it's a TV show that is sort of a documentary where they'll find people who can't throw things away, basically. So they collect stuff upon stuff upon stuff. And here's a picture of a hoarder house where you can see there's stacks and stacks of books. There's a fan. There's a globe. There's an old stereo in the back. And just there's trash. I think it's all sitting on a couch, uh, can't really tell, but I think there's a couch under there. There's a closet back there. There's just tons and tons of stuff. Probably, my guess is that this stuff is about chest high, just junk everywhere. And so what will happen is they'll go into these hoarder homes. They'll bring a specialist in. They'll kind of work with the people and, and figure out what's going on, what's causing the problem. They'll clean up the house and, and try to help the person just kind of get a new start in life. Now, I don't know if you can see this or not. But right there, sitting on top of the stack of junk, is a really cute little purple plant. Can you all see that plant? <laughs> it's, just, it's just sitting there. I, when I saw this picture, I was just like, they put a little plant on there. It's like pretty, even, you know? And so for our talk today, we're going we're gonna to view that plant sitting on all of the junk as the pretty little lie that we're talking about. But really, there's so much more that's underneath the lie. So I am enough doesn't exist in a vacuum. There is philosophies and worldviews and all kinds of things that prop it up that are underneath it. Now, the one thing that always stands out to me when I watch Hoarders, which really isn't that often anymore. My husband's kind of a bigger fan than I am. He just loves it. I don't know why he loves it. But (laughs) when they first walk in the house, every single time, the thing that's stunning, because we're just watching on TV so we can only see it, but is the visceral reaction they all have to the smell. 
Every time they walk in a hoarder house, you can see their faces. They grimace and they react to the smell that is in the house. And they can't get to what's causing the smell until they start removing the books and the tapes and the broken fans and the globes and the stereos. And then they get to what my husband and I lovingly refer to as the dead cat layer. <laughs> because often they will find dead animals. They will find feces and urine. And, and on the bottom of all of this junk is often, I, they didn't even realize the cats had mated and had babies and they lived a life and died under all of their VC, broken VCRs, you know. And that's what's causing the smell. And so it's kind of a joke between us. When I come in and he's watching hoarders, I'll say, hey, yeah, have they gotten to the dead cat layer yet? You know, and he'll kind of laugh. But it's really true. So we're going to look at these pretty little lies. But we're also going to look at what's under the lie. Because what's under the lie will cause all kinds of those pretty little purple plants to spring up. All of these pretty little lies that sound good. But have you ever heard something on a blog or in a book and you're like, no, but you can't quite articulate how to, you're just like, I know that's wrong, but I don't know how to explain it. It's often because it's just one of those purple plants that's sitting on top of the VCRs, but really it's the, the dead cat layer that's informing the pretty little lie. So the pretty little lie is I am enough, but what's underneath that, the smell, the thing that's, that's informing it is that people are basically good. The world thinks this, that people are basically good. That if we were all just left to ourselves, we would be loving and kind and nice to each other. We would do good things. But as we'll see in our second talk, the Bible teaches quite a different point of view. But see, logically, I think we all know this. We like to think we're good, but logically, we know we're not. If you look through world history, you can see that generally humans have not treated each other well. In fact, humans have committed some of the most horrible atrocities you can even imagine. Some you haven't imagined and you don't want to imagine. Clay Jones wrote a book called Why Does God Allow Evil? And it's a hard book to read, but I recommend you read it because he goes through world history and, and he documents some of the horrors, the genocides, just horrible things that humans have done to each other. And he says it's important for us to know about that stuff because it really demonstrates that humans aren't basically good. And particularly on the subject of genocide, he notes as along with other scholars who have studied genocide, did you know genocide is mostly committed by normal people like you and me? They're not homicidal maniacs, generally speaking. It's just normal people that have families and feed their dogs and, and work their land and love their families. If you need proof of this, look at the abortion holocaust in America. Where otherwise, quote unquote, good people are fighting for the right for women to be able to kill their child in the womb. These are not insane people. These are not people who are out robbing banks and committing murder. These are otherwise nice people who do good things in the world. But that should cause us to look at ourselves and say, I'm capable of that. And lest we think we're not, there's probably going to be something in our life that will prove us wrong with that. So just speaking from a logical perspective, this is going to touch on a doctrine we're going to talk about later called original sin. 
And that's that the Bible teaches that humans were born with a sin nature. We're born with a propensity to sin. And I, a great illustration of this is I was once on a playground with my daughter when she was probably two. And uh, I saw another parent there that I knew from the church I was going to at the time. And his daughter was playing. And so we were talking a little bit. And I knew that he did not believe in original sin. He believes that people are born good and that they're basically good. And they have to actually learn to do wrong things. They have to learn to cheat and steal and lie. And every mom in the room knows that's completely false. But... (laughs) His daughter and my daughter were playing, and he was arguing really hard, like, why do you think that? You know, that's, the Bible says we were created, and he called us good, and, and all of these things. And then he said, okay, honey, it's time to go. <laughs> and his daughter, I kid you not, she had a toddler's and tiara-level meltdown right in front. She did not care that he needed to go. She was being selfish, and she was crying, and she would not obey, and she wouldn't come. And I think he really kind of grasped this just from a common sense level. And he looked at me kind of sheepish and he said, well, maybe you're right. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why blog posts like this one fall short. This is a blog post I found that's entitled to every exhausted mom out there, you are enough. Now, how many exhausted moms do we have in the room? who need that I'm tired coffee mug in the morning. Okay, I am one of the exhausted moms. It's getting better. My kids are seven and 10, so it's not quite as crazy as it was when they were younger, but I relate to this, right? I relate to just wanting to punch a hole through the wall because my kid won't stop crying at two in the morning. And so you can see why this is attractive to people who are in that same place in their lives. And I just love, by the way, that this blog post has a picture of a crying woman with her hair in a messy bun and probably no makeup on and all this, can't tell because she's crying so hard. But it's posed right next to a picture of a woman in a bikini who has obviously never had a baby. (laughs) Nothing will encourage an exhausted mom than like a perfect woman in a bikini, I'm just saying. (laughs) <laughs> so I want to read you, I'm at, it's a short blog post, so I'm actually going to just read this to you. And I want you to see how this fails, how this fails to comfort, it fails to meet the need of the problem, and it just fails to minister in any way. Here's what it says. To every exhausted mom out there, you are enough, you are important, you are worthy This is a phase of life for us. This is really, really hard, challenging, crazy phase of life. In the end, it will all be worth it. But for now, it's hard. It's hard for so many of us in many different ways. We don't always talk about it, but it's hard. And it's not just you. You are enough. You are doing your best. Those little eyes that look up at you, they think you are perfect. They think you are more than enough. Those little hands that reach out to hold you, they think you are the strongest. They think you can conquer the world. Those little mouths eating the food you gave them, they think that you are the best because their bellies are full. (laughs) She obviously hasn't met my kids. Um, Those little hearts that reach out to yours, they don't want anything more. They just want you because you are enough. You are enough, mama. You are amazing. Now, there's some truth in there, right? Uh, I do think our kids think we're awesome and that we can conquer the world. I thought that about my mom. That's true. But you can see why this whole type of thinking doesn't bring any real comfort or any real relief from feelings of worthlessness, guilt, or shame, or just feeling overwhelmed. Because maybe if I've just yelled at my kids for something small, maybe I need to repent 
and ask God to forgive me. And maybe I need to go repent to my kids as well and model repentance for them. Not just tell myself I'm amazing. <laughs> that doesn't fix it. That, it just doesn't fix it. Moms, let's look at this statement where it says, those little mouths eating the food you gave them, they think you are the best because their bellies are full. I find generally that if children have never had an empty belly, they're not particularly grateful that their bellies are full. They expect their bellies to be full. So some of this stuff sounds good. Like it kind of makes you feel better for a second, but it's not true. So it's not going to meet those deeper needs. So we need to go deeper and we will in the second talk on this. But let's look at the next lie. You are the boss of you. And we're going to go back to Rachel Hollis here. Um, I think this is the last time we're, pick, we're going to pick on her ideas because we're going to go to some others as well. But we're going to look at another quote, a couple of quotes from her book. So this whole idea of you being the boss of you, like we don't want to be too critical here. I mean, there's part of that is true. Each one of us are responsible for ourselves, right? You're not going to achieve anything if you don't try. All of that is true. I, please don't hear me say that you shouldn't, you know, follow a calling that you believe God has put on your life or something like that. I'm not saying that. But what this appeals to, this particular lie, you are the boss of you, appeals to a sense of autonomy, that we're not really accountable to anyone else other than ourselves. We are completely in charge of our own destiny. And, and that's the part of it that's a lie. We are accountable to a higher law. We're accountable to God. So here's what Rachel Hollis says in her book. You are meant to be the hero of your own story. She says, you should be the very first of your priorities. So what's under this lie? What's the dead cat layer of you are the boss of you? The philosophy, the underlying worldview of this is that life is basically about being happy. This is what the world tells us that the point of life is to be happy. That if something's not making you happy, you should change it. If, if something doesn't bring you joy or make you feel good, it shouldn't be in your life. That, that's the lie. I'm going to play for you a, a short video. It's about three and a half minutes, I think. And this is a video that was shared widely on Facebook. And uh, this is this woman's idea of you are the boss of you. As much as I would like to say that I married for love, I didn't. I had an amazing life. Right out of college, I got married. I moved to Italy, to Lake Como, which is one of the most beautiful places in the world. I would ride around in my Vespa, wind in my hair, sun in my smiling face. I had what you would imagine to be this renaissance painting. So I had it all, picture-perfect life, on the outside. But on the inside, it was a different story. On the inside, it was like that painting was cracking and peeling. So what was wrong? Everything. I didn't know it, but I hated myself. And I kept it up, I kept up this painting, especially for me, my parents, I could not let my parents know, especially not my dad, he would kill me. And I spent nine years suppressing 
what my heart was telling me, suppressing my emotions, ignoring them. No, but I was lost, broken, I was afraid. We were driving along the lake. We were going to see some friends that had just had their third baby, so we veer up to go to the hospital. And the whole time in the car that we're going there, there was something inside of me that just something was not sitting right. I was not feeling okay. We get there, go up to the maternity ward floor. I just couldn't handle it. I didn't know what was wrong. And I go down this hallway. It's eerily empty, huge. And I find a place on the wall and I just brace myself. And I don't know what's going on. And this feeling is just getting stronger. Shame and blame. How could you? You're such a horrible person. It was just going over and over and over again. I just wanted to jump out of the window and sink to the bottom of the lake. And I'm standing there and I'm just, what is wrong with me? And all of a sudden, all the screaming in my head just stopped. And I'm looking at myself. And I was so clear, I was finally clear there was only one decision that I could make. I had to leave. I had to leave this life. I had to leave the marriage. I had to leave everything. And I didn't know how because I had trapped myself in that painting that I meticulously curated for nine years. And there was so much at stake. I didn't want to hurt my husband. He wasn't a bad person. He was a great person my family, our friends, nine years of relationships. And then I would have to face people. I was going to get blamed. I was going to be hated. I was going to get yelled at. My dad was definitely going to kill me. I was so afraid, but I made the decision anyway. Because for the first time in a really long time, I made a decision for myself. And for me, one of the most difficult ones was calling my dad and telling him, And I still remember calling him and I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so, so sorry. And he pauses and doesn't say anything and I'm, I'm ready. And he says, Adapia, come home. Since you're not happy. So obviously this appeals to our emotions because we can probably, many in this room, relate to what she was feeling. The shame, the guilt, just feeling trapped. We can all relate to that kind of stuff. But the music and everything makes it so pretty, her answer, when really that answer is the world's answer. It's not God's answer. According to worldly wisdom, she did the right thing. She wasn't happy. So she divorced her husband. But I want us to think about what Jesus really promised us. We're going to drill deeper on the biblical stuff in the next talk, but do you think that it made the Apostle Paul happy to be whipped and beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, mocked, and imprisoned, and eventually beheaded? Do you think that made him happy? Do you think it made persecuted Christians in ISIS territory happy to have to leave their homes and their businesses, jobs, and security, and be driven out or even worse, killed? Or have their children killed in front of them? Do you think that made them happy? This idea is just another version of a prosperity gospel. But the gospel, the real gospel, is not a prosperity gospel. 
It's not a promise book. When I was a little girl, my grandma gave me this little promise book, and I would flip through it, and all these verses that I realize now a lot of them were really taken out of context, <laughs> and they weren't necessarily promises for me. But if, if somebody made a real promise book, a, a, a book that was actual promises for us from the Bible, we would read things like, the world will hate you. In this world, you will have trouble. That's actually a promise from Jesus. That if you trust in Jesus, you will be persecuted. That's a promise. He who endures till the end will be saved. That's a promise too. But he wouldn't have to say that if it was just going to be about us being happy. What would you be enduring if life was just about being happy? So there is a Lutheran minister named Nadia Boltz Weber. How many of you have heard of Nadia Boltz Weber? Okay, a few of you. Uh, she's a Lutheran minister and uh, pastors a church, and it has about five or 600 people. She's actually left the pastorate now to become a public theologian, but she advocates a completely new sexual ethic for Christians. She thinks that we have gotten it wrong for 2,000 years and we need to burn the whole thing down and start over. And so in a little bit of a publicity stunt to promote her latest book, Shameless, she told a group of women uh, at a conference that if they would mail her their purity rings, she would have them all melted down and made into a sculpture of a vagina. And then she would give that to Gloria Steinem as a thank you gift for all her work uh, in feminism. And she made good on that promise about a week before her book Shameless came out. Now, I reviewed the book Shameless, and it was very difficult to read, to be honest. I couldn't believe what I was reading most of the time. But her basic premise is this lie, that you should be, life's really about you being happy. That if you're not sexually fulfilled, then you need to pursue whatever sexual flourishing looks like for you. And the examples that she gave in her book were varied, virtually anything, including pornography, including uh, same-sex relationships, in, including premarital sex and extramarital sex. It was just all whatever you define as sexual flourishing, which, which, which is going to promote that in yourself. She teaches that the idea that Christians should wait to have sex until they're married is false, it's, it's uh, damaging, and it's harmful. That's, that's what she teaches. And so in her book, here's what she says. She says, whatever sexual flourishing looks like for you, that's what I would love to see happen in your life. So this is just another version of you are the boss of you that's undergirded by the idea that really life's about being happy. You should be sexually fulfilled. You shouldn't have to deny any of those urges or any of that part of yourself, according to Nadia Boltz-Weber. And perhaps an even more well-known shift on biblical sexuality is the story of Jen Hatmaker. Now, how many people have heard of Jen Hatmaker? Yeah, many, many more. So Jen Hatmaker, if you're not familiar, was an incredibly popular evangelical women's blogger, teacher, speaker, uh, author. She's written many books, uh, close to a million followers on Facebook, very, very popular evangelical uh, women's speaker. And a couple of years ago, she shifted in her view on LGBT relationships, claiming that they are biblically accepted. 
So she was, a little while after that, she was interviewed on a podcast called The Bible for Normal People, which is a great name, and I wish that I would have thought of that name for my podcast, but it's actually a, a podcast by a, a progressive Christian scholar, so this is somebody that was in alignment with her views, and so she, he, Pete Enns is the host, and he asked her, what was it, what was the biblical point that caused you to shift on your view regarding um, same-sex relationships, that this is something God blesses and, and endorses and considers to be good. And so she pointed out that when Jesus is talking about judging by the fruit, that's the turning point for her, that we're supposed to look at the fruit. Here's what she said. When there's something, be it a relationship, a person, or a doctrine that feels ambiguous or it feels contentious, or there's tension around its interpretation, look to the fruit. The fruit's going to tell you the truth. And then she went on to talk about really the 2,000-year history of the church, which she would call non-affirming. And the fruit of that non-affirming tree, she says, is rotten. And so that's why she shifted in her view. So in her mind, bad fruit equals bad experience. Because then she went to go on and quote statistics of depression and things like that among LGBT youth and things that we should as Christians be concerned about and looking to minister to. But she's seeing that as bad fruit. Bad fruit equals bad experience. Now we are going to drill down on this in the next talk and really talk about what the Bible means when it says bad fruit. But these are some of the things that are informing people's shifts on some of these issues is that really... What she's saying here is that if you're not happy, then you should change what you believe. I mean, ultimately, that's what she's saying. She's saying life is about being happy. Our next pretty little lie is you shouldn't judge. We hear this one all the time, don't we? And people who say this are very quick to quote Jesus, who said, judge not that you be not judged. I'm sure all of us has been in a conversation when we share an example of biblical morality or the exclusive nature of the gospel, and we get shut down. But there's something under this lie, something that's informing it. The lie, you shouldn't judge, that's the pretty little purple plant. But what's under that, the smell, the thing that's informing it, is that really the greatest virtue that a person can have is tolerance. How many of you hear the word tolerance a lot in our culture, right? This is something that we all encounter. But what does the word tolerance mean? Think about what that word actually means. The word tolerance means by nature you disagree with someone because you wouldn't have to tolerate them if you didn't disagree. So tolerance originally meant you disagree with someone, but you, you want to give them the right to say it. You, you accept them as if you're not going to reject them or, or, or hurt them or go to war with them. We tolerate each other's ideas, but by nature, the word tolerance implies disagreement, but that's not what it means anymore. Our culture has changed the meaning of that world, of that word. So tolerance now means something more like celebrating another person's ideas, affirming their ideas. Tolerance is actually flipped in meaning to mean the opposite of what it really means. Today, when people use the word tolerance, they mean, don't disagree with me. Just keep your mouth shut if you don't like it, right? And this is undergirded by a worldview called pluralism. 
Now, pluralism is something, oop, we're not going there yet. Got a sneak peek. So pluralism is a worldview. Now, the word pluralism just means a bunch of different ideas coexisting together. But in the religious sense, religious pluralism is that idea that all roads lead to God, right? We Christians follow Jesus. He's our way to God. Uh, The Buddhists, they do their rituals and their things, and they're finding God their way. The Hindus are finding God their way. The, The Muslims are going through Muhammad, but it's all going to the same place. God sees it all and accepts all of the worship, right? This is a very popular idea in culture. It's a very popular idea in the church, not this church, but the church at large, There's a movement in the church that I focus on called progressive Christianity. And this is an underlying view of many, many progressive Christians that it is judgmental. It is rude, it is intolerant to tell, uh, to really speak the gospel to a Muslim because they're okay. They have their seat at the table. How arrogant of us to think that our way is better. And that's a very, very popular view. And that is underlying this idea of tolerance which is underlying the lie. And so we're going to, again, drill down more on that in the next talk. The next lie we're going to talk about is authenticity is everything. You do you. Be yourself. Be true to yourself. Right? We hear these messages in our culture. Now, again, there's some truth to this. We should be very real with God and with ourselves about who we really are, right? I, I, I don't like when people come to church with a big fake smile on there, like, everything is great, it's fine, you know, I'm victorious in the Lord. Like, sometimes I just want to punch people like that, I'm just being honest, you know. Like, I, I, everything's swell and, you know, pretending that, that we're something we're not. I'm not advocating that. Don't hear me say that. Don't hear me say that you don't have very specific and beautiful gifts and talents and personality that God has gifted you with that he will use in tremendous, amazing, and beautiful ways. Please don't hear me say that. But being authentic is often used to excuse our sin. I'm just being authentic, right? It's messy. That's such a buzzword, messy, right? And often what people mean when they're saying that is it's okay. Your sin is okay. It's, it's good. You know, it's fine. It's part of you. Be authentic. Just be real. You know, just be who you are. Trust me, you guys. You don't want me to be authentic with my children, right? <laughs> I mean, when I wake up in the morning and I'm just like, no, I got I to gotta push some stuff down, okay? And that's okay, <laughs> Right? So being authentic as the greatest virtue is a misappropriation of focus. I'm not saying don't be authentic, but to make authenticity the primary virtue is, that's where the lie is. So there's a uh, author and research professor who writes about shame, vulnerability, and faith. Her name's Brene Brown. Many Christians follow her teachings, and I've heard her quoted by pastors in sermons, and she, I believe, I I looked this up, and I do believe she identifies as a Christian, although her main uh, audience is not necessarily just the church, but many Christians follow her teachings. And in her book, she said this, true belonging is the spiritual practice of believing in and belonging to yourself so deeply that you can share your most authentic self with the world. True belonging doesn't require you to change who you are. 
It requires you to be who you are. And so she's hitting on a common longing, right? The the longing to belong. We all want to belong. And that's actually a God-given need. It's not good for man to be alone. We crave that. And that's why we're supposed to find that in community with other believers and in fellowship. So we, we can relate with that statement. But in her book, Braving the Wilderness, she teaches that each of us have an inherent divinity. Now, this is borrowed from New Age thought. Now, many people think New Age is kind of passe, like that's something from the 80s with Shirley MacLaine and psychic hotlines and all of that stuff. Make no mistake, New Age is alive and well in 2019. It's just wearing skinny jeans and glasses now. And often it's couched in Christian language. It's very, very common. And so what's under this lie? What's under this lie is that humans don't really need to be saved. We don't, we're, we're fine, right? But think about the lies we've talked about so far. If you're the boss of you, and, and you're basically good. You're not fallen. You don't have sin to repent for. Why wouldn't you be authentic? Why wouldn't you buy all of this stuff? If you are God, if you have God already inside you, why wouldn't you be true to yourself? If there's nothing to be saved from, why, this, this would all make perfect sense. But this brings us back to original sin and the primary disagreement between the world and Christianity, which is that humans are fallen. And just want to come back to this Rachel Hollis quote. I studied the gospel and finally grasped the divine knowledge that I am loved and worthy enough. I am enough as I am. And it may sound shocking that Brene Brown teaches that there's an inherent divinity, but this is very common, even in a lot of Christian literature. This is one of the points of Rob Bell's latest book, uh, not latest book, but the book that he wrote about God, that we are all connected by this divine energy, this spark. He refers to God almost like the force in Star Wars that's in and through all of us. But think about it. If that's true, if you are divine, if you are, have inherent divinity and every other person does, the exclusivity, exclusivity of Christianity would be offensive. To say Jesus is the only way to God, I'm already God. I've got it inside me. Why would I need that? It makes sense, doesn't it? All these lies make sense when we see it through that lens. All right, let's talk about our last lie. Speak your truth. There is a mommy blogger. She started out as a mommy blogger. Her name is Glennon Doyle, and she gained a tremendous following on her blog called Momastery. She's down to earth. She's sweet. She's funny. All the things that attract people. All the things that, she's hilarious. If you go on her Facebook page, it's, she, just, she says funny things and things you really relate to as a woman and as mothers. And so uh, she's written books. She's been on Oprah. And about three years ago, she divorced her husband and married women's soccer star, Abby Wambach. And this was to the praise and accolades of many of her fans. And so when she introduced her hundreds of thousands of Facebook followers to Abby, She ended her message uh, with this. She said, what the world needs in order to grow, in order to relax, 
in order to find peace, in order to become brave, is to watch one woman at a time live her truth. Because that's what she was doing. By divorce, they had kids divorcing her husband and coming out of the closet and then marrying Abby Wambach. That was her way of living her truth. And her message ever since then has been, women, Christian women, live your truth. Be brave. And also crush the patriarchy. But that's a whole other talk. (laughs) So what's under this lie? Speak your truth. What's under this lie is the idea, and this is really a worldview, is that truth is relative. It's a philosophy called relativism. And relativism teaches that all points of view are equally valid. So the way you see the world and the way I see the world, we're not going to tell each other that we're wrong. It's just that's your perspective and this is my perspective. But this fails logically, which is why most scholars, most philosophy professors in the world will not claim to be relativists because you can knock relativism down with one law of logic, and that's the law of non-contradiction. And the law of non-contradiction states that two contradictory statements cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. Two contradictory statements cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. So to flesh this out in real life, if I hold this up, what is this? A water bottle. So if I say, this is a water bottle, and then I say, this is an iPhone. This is really simple, but it's true. Those statements cannot both be true at the same time and in the same sense. This is either a water bottle or an iPhone or it's neither, but it can't be both at the same time. So if you say something about reality and I say something different about reality, reality is the test for who's correct, right? I might see something, but I don't see the whole picture, but that doesn't change what reality is about the thing I'm seeing. Does that kind of make sense? Let's, let's bring this into a re- the religious sphere. When we're talking about religious pluralism, this is why religious pluralism fails as well, because all religions contradict each other, at least on some point, and usually in the core points. They share some common things, and this is what people will bring up. There is the idea of do unto others as you would have them do to you. You can actually trace that all the way back to Confucius and even further. There are ancient uh, religions, philosophies that teach some version of Jesus' statement, even before Jesus. Usually it's in the negative. Don't do something to someone that you wouldn't want them to do to you. Jesus flipped it into the positive. So people will take that and say, See, Christianity is just one of many. See, Jesus said this. Confucius said something like it. It's, it's in a lot of different ancient religions. They're all saying the same thing. Well, think about it. The law of God is written on our hearts. It's no surprise that uh, an ancient Chinese philosopher stumbled upon the fact that we should be nice to each other, right? That's, that's no shocker there. But they contradict each other at very core levels. Let's take Islam and Christianity. Christianity, as we're going to talk about in the next talk, stands or falls based on 
a historical event being true. Do you know what it is? The resurrection of Jesus. Islam teaches that Jesus didn't die on the cross. And so if Islam is correct and Jesus didn't die on the cross, well, then he wasn't really resurrected because he wasn't really dead. So if, if Islam got that fact right, then Christianity as a whole belief system is false. They can't both be right. Jesus either died on the cross or he didn't. It doesn't matter which perspective I'm looking at it from. It doesn't matter which uh, view of the cross I had. It either happened in reality or it didn't. And that's why they contradict each other. They can't both be right about that. Let's look at these apples. Same thing with the apples. If I say these are two green apples, and then I say those are two oranges, both of those statements can't be true at the same time and in the same sense. Those are either apples or oranges or they're something else. But they can't both be true, those statements, okay? We feel like we got that. Speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have, Oprah said at her acceptance speech of this Cecil B. DeMille Award at the 2018 Golden Globes Awards. It went all over Facebook. Everybody was so inspired by what she was saying. But this is assuming that truth is relative. This is assuming that the worldview of relativism is true. So to, show, to illustrate this point, when I was doing some research on this, I googled the health benefits of pork, okay, because bacon. I'm not going to lie. I love bacon. <laughs> so I learned from a quick Google search that 100,000 tons of pork is consumed worldwide each year. I learned that it's high protein, low carb, gluten-free, and it contains a good balance of every essential amino acid. I found an article claiming that pork will give you glowing skin, that it will detox your body of heavy metals and prevent adult disease, whatever that is. <laughs> so <laughs> that one might be true. Um, so obviously what I gleaned in a five-minute Google search was a mix of facts and fantasy. So how do we think through stuff? How do we wade through the massive amount of information that's given to us on any given subject? Which scholars do we listen to? What sources do we trust? Does it even matter? Well, it matters because truth matters. Should I just pile a bunch of bacon in a bowl and call it a gluten-free salad and live my life? <laughs> yes. As much as I'd love to pick and choose what to believe about pork and stand gleefully by why others do the same, it's not realistic. Because we all know that at least too much, I get people really push back on this, by the way, that too much bacon is not good for us, right? People love to argue about that. Uh, but we all know that because ideas, what we believe about things have consequences. Our beliefs will have consequences in reality. So if I consider bacon the newest superfood to hit the whole food shelves, those ideas will bear themselves out in my body. That, will, that idea that I have will have consequences on my blood pressure, on my cholesterol level, and on my thighs, unless you're doing keto, and then you can eat tons of bacon and not get fat, apparently. So my truth when it comes to bacon does not exist. It, it's either going to make me healthier or it's not. It doesn't matter what I think about it. I could tell everybody in my world that it's great, eat all the bacon you want, but that idea will bear out in reality. And so my truth doesn't exist. Your truth doesn't exist. 
right? Only the truth exists. And so rather than affirming all of our different ideas about reality, why don't we shift our thinking to match reality, right? We all want our worldview to line up with what's real. And all of us have areas where we need to keep tweaking and adjusting that. We all do. But the goal should be, rather than to just affirm everybody's personal truth, the goal for us as Christians especially is to line our worldview up with reality. Because think about it. Think about when your worldview isn't lined up with reality. Like there are diagnoses for that. There's medication for that. You know, I I mean, being serious, people who, who don't have a correct view of reality in an extreme way can be diagnosed with, with mental, uh, you know, health issues and things. We want our worldviews to line up with reality. So Glennon Doyle's comment, what the world needs in order to grow, in order to relax, in order to find peace, in order to become brave is to watch one woman at a time live her truth. Think about this now. Does she want me living my truth? I don't think she does. I think if I were to go at one of her events and starts talking like this, she would shut me down in a hot second. It would, it would not bring her any peace or relaxation. <laughs> it would only bring her that peace and relaxation if my truth matched her ideals. That's why my truth doesn't work. Because my truth is just as absolute as the truth. Because really, this is absolutism. It, it sounds good. It sounds like this message of all-inclusive, everybody's ideas are welcome. My ideas are not welcome there. I can assure you of that. So relativism bottoms out in absolutism. You can't say there is no truth without claiming that that statement is true. If you say to someone, all truth is relative, you're making an absolute truth statement that that statement is true. Is it Is it relative then that all truth is relative? Because that's an absolute truth statement. And that's what we call in logic a self-refuting statement. It's a statement that when you say it, it refutes itself and makes itself untrue. This is where we're going to have to put our thinking caps on because this can be kind of confusing. But you can't say truth is relative without claiming that at least that one truth is true for everyone. So in our next session, we're going to talk about what the Bible says about truth. We're going to drill down on some of these pretty little purple plants that are sitting on the, on all the the hoarding trash and junk. And we're going to see what God has to say about all of these worldviews, all of these lies. enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. 
Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.